if you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. We're going to consider one of the sections here. We'll turn to verse 121. Psalm 119, verse 121. But before I read that, I want to read another passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. I want us to keep this in your mind from, from what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians before we begin in Psalm 119. And Paul says this to the church at Corinth, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, death worketh in us, but life in you. We, having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken, we also believe, and therefore speak knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. I have believed, therefore have I spoken. And Paul says here in 2 Corinthians that they speak with the same spirit of faith that the psalmist spoken. Same spirit of faith. Dispensationalism uh, robbed believers a whole lot of treasure in the scripture proper interpretation and many places in scripture that you should be understanding is applying to you today uh, you lose in that system so I wanted to consider from Psalm 119 this morning and how we should receive this in the same spirit of faith as this believer probably David <laughs> Uh, gave this to us through the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read now Psalm 119, verses 121 through 128. And this is what the Word of God says. I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy, and teach me thy statutes. I am thy servant. Give me understanding, that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, now as we enter into the scripture you've given, please give us understanding of these things. Help us to behold your glory in this and also to grow in faith in your only begotten Son. Heavenly Father, we cannot understand these correctly and, and we cannot have these truths in our lives unless you apply them by the Holy Spirit. And so we do ask that you would grant us that we also have the same spirit of faith. Please grant us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's consider, I would like to go through all these verses and see what we can pull from this and what's going to strengthen us in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that the uh, Psalm 119 is the longest of the Psalms, and it goes in the Hebrew alphabet, each section being one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, represented by each letter. And so this section here runs from 128, well, 121 to 128. And the first two verses here are a couplet. They go together. I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. So let's consider these verses here. I have done judgment and justice. And what we learn from all the scripture is that our actions reveal the truth of our spiritual condition. When the believer here is pronouncing this, I have done judgment and justice, he is not looking to be justified by his works. There are some who would read that and misunderstand what is going on here. He is not saying, oh God, accept me because I always do what's right. And we're going to see that as we get into the next section of these verses here. But he is professing the truth and sincerity of who he is by what he does. And that's a very important point. And it applies still today because we see this truth. In the New Testament, we learn from the very beginning of the Gospels, in the sermons that were first preached by John the Baptist and by Jesus himself, he said, don't, don't think to yourself, well, we're the children of Abraham. You got to show the works. You got to do the works of Abraham. You got to prove that you're a child of Abraham by the way you live. The Lord said, even, even from stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. But the truth is going to be revealed in how you live. And this is exactly what he's saying here. Judgment and justice. That means doing to others what God has commanded that we do. Loving our neighbor as ourself. Loving the brethren and laying down our lives for them. Honesty and integrity in all of our dealings. The Ten Commandments gives us a, a guideline of how we should relate to each other and how we should relate to God. Justice is to give everybody their due. We're to respect authority. We respect authority, even when they're wrong. And authorities are supposed to respect those under them and to care for them. 
That's justice. That's judgment. And this is what the believer here professes that he, he lives like. Remember David when he was suffering under the persecution of King Saul. You'll remember that he would not lift up his hand against him. Why? Because that was the authority. He had to wait for God. That was justice. It was justice for him not to avenge himself, but to leave the authority to God. That truth still applies today. That's why Jesus can say that we are to turn the other cheek. We're to bless those who curse us. That's why when they came to arrest Jesus, he could have done something about that. But he did not. He had to stand before a corrupt bureaucrat, Pontius Pilate. A man who knew the truth and knew what justice was and knew what was right, but was going to do what was wrong. And do injustice because it was convenient for him. And what did Jesus do then? He left it to God to vindicate him. He suffered under that injustice and waited for God. That's part of what it is to do judgment and justice, is to leave those things to the Lord. Our lives are going to express that. We see this all through the scripture. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. A man is going to prove his faith by the way he lives before God. Nevertheless, a man is not a man of faith does not rest on his works. He doesn't rely. That's not his savior. So where can this man find his acceptance with God? How can this man appear before God and have assurance that he's going to be accepted? Because we'll find in this psalm, if you continue on, this believer here also confesses sin. The very last verse of Psalm 119, he says this, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant. So he confesses that he doesn't always live up to God's will, to God's commandments. So how can he find acceptance with this God? How can he know that he will be accepted? And that's where we get into the second part of this couplet. In verse 122, look what he says here. Be surety for thy servant for good. Be surety. Now, what is a surety? A surety is a person that takes legal responsibility for somebody else's legal obligations. That's a surety. Let me say that again. A surety is someone who takes legal responsibility 
for someone else's legal obligations. And I want to dig more into this because this is so crucial. Because this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of every true believer's faith. Old Testament and New Testament. Because there's only ever been one way of justification before God. And that's justification by faith. So turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at a couple of passages here. Hebrews chapter 9. Verses 24. And this is kind of a long reading here, but I think it's worth it that we consider this. Hebrews chapter 9, 24, and I'm going to read through 10, 10. 9.24 through 10.10. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. That's talking about the tabernacle, the temple. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth, entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers, once purged, should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering, and burnt offering, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which were offered by the law, then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that is the first covenant, that he may establish the second. By the which will, that is God's will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now turn to Psalm 40, because this is where Paul had pulled this quote from, Psalm 40. And there's something very wonderful here in this Psalm 40 that I would like you to see. In talking about Christ as our surety, and we saw in those verses that we read that Christ appears in heaven for us. 
after having made the atonement. Now look at what it says in Psalm 40. We're going to read 6 through 13. This is where Paul has pulled that quote. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I have preached righteousness in the great congregation. Lo, I have not refrained my lips, O Lord, thou knowest. I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold not thou thy tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head. Therefore, my heart faileth me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Now, here we saw in Hebrews that these verses are attributed to Christ Jesus. But if you look here in verse 12 of Psalm 40, he says, Innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head, therefore my heart faileth me. Now, how is this possible that this could apply to the Lord Jesus when we know from the Scripture very clearly and explicitly that He never sinned? The scripture is very clear on that. Christ Jesus never sinned. So how is it that he can say here, mine iniquities? Well, here's how. He's the surety. And he takes legal responsibility for those whom he represents. You see, when Jesus became our Savior, when it was time for him to go to that cross, our sins became his. He took responsibility for them. They belong to him now. Legally. Our sins are legally his sins. Even though he did not commit them. And so he can say. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me. More than the hairs of his head. Think about what a precious thing that is. Jesus took possession of the sin guilt that you accrued. He took possession of it and called it his. And he has given you in its place his righteousness. Is there anybody that could do more for you than Jesus has done? Is there anybody be willing to do that for you? Is there anybody who could do that for you, even if they were willing to do it? No. I really would like for you to take to heart here what a precious and wonderful Savior that you have. Imagine the heartbreak 
and what he was experiencing as he uttered these words. Because this is what he experienced on the cross. And we're the ones who put him there. We put him on that cross with our sins. And out of his love for us, he took them upon himself. That's what it is to have a surety. We have a wonderful surety. And so we have the same spirit of faith that we see here in Psalm 119. If you want to turn back there, Psalm 119, this is exactly what this believer is looking for. That's the ground of his acceptance with God. And he has to ask God to do this for him. He requests it. Be surety for thy servant. For good. And it is for good. It's for our good and for his glory. Never forget. What a wonderful surety and savior that you have. Always be touched in your heart with the love of Christ for you. And what a heavy burden he was willing to bear. Now let's consider the second part of these couplets here, this couplet in 121 and 122. He says, leave me not to mine oppressors. Let not the proud oppress me. So we need to talk about oppression. Now, here in this text, we know that the, the psalmist is writing about the kind of oppression that we experience in this life at the hands of other people. But before I remark on that, let me remind you of the greatest oppression of all, and that is the oppression of a guilty, burdened, terrified conscience. There is no suffering like a tormented conscience. And if any of you have ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been convicted of your sins, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a horrifying thing to be awakened to what your sins deserve. That's the greatest oppression of all. And that's the oppression that the Lord Jesus has delivered us from. What a wonderful thing that no matter what you suffer in this life, he's delivered you from that. So whatever we have to face, we got many trials ahead of us. You remember what we learned this morning in the Sunday school. And Daniel was teaching us. In our Christian life, there are many hardships we have to face following the Lord Jesus. And ultimately, we are going to face death, which is a horrifying thing. And we all have to face that. But as bad as those things are, nothing is worse than a tormented conscience and a conscience aware of its guilt before a holy God. Tormented with the judgment to come. And you can always be thankful, no matter what you have to go through in this life. There is a ground for rejoicing, ground for happiness and confidence. 
that the greatest of all terrors you've been delivered from because you have this surety, because you have this Savior. So that's the remark I wanted to make about that oppressor, that oppression. But here he's talking about earthly oppressors. And in this life, you're going to face the hostility of those who hate God. As we were driving to church this morning, my wife remarked that somebody had like this idol thing in their yard. And uh, I didn't get to look at it. I'm guessing it was a, a St. Francis or a St. Joseph, probably. The Catholics like to put them images up in their yards to get a blessing by putting a, a stone image of a dead saint in their yard. And it's idolatry. And why do people do this? Why do people set up these idols? Because they don't know God. They don't know God. That's why they turn to idols. They're blind. And Jesus said, the world will hate you. The world is going to persecute you. And he says, why? Because they don't know me. And they don't know the Father. There, there is going to be this oppression come one way or another. The darkness is always going to hate the light. And here we see that the psalmist is praying to God for deliverance from the oppression. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Let not the proud oppress me. It's a proud thing. It's, it's the, the sons of pride that oppress the children of God. And remember, who is the most proud in, in this world? Satan is, is called very proud. Very proud. And it's hard to believe that people that in God's estimation are so low could be so proud. But that just goes to show the kind of ignorance that is in them. And we, we can't be shocked at that. Because the scripture says, those that desire to live godly will suffer persecution. We've talked about it before. How we wish well to those who hate us. We don't want to be oppressed. We don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be held in contempt. It's hard for a man to be disrespected. Sometimes women, I don't think, understand that. What a, what a stab it is to a man to be held in contempt. It's hard. Sometimes it's easier to take a, 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 a physical hit than to take a slander or a contemptuous word. It's hard. And yet, we must love those who hate us. Bless those who curse us and do good to those who do us wrong. We remember that we also were once blind and ignorant. And that's the reason why we're not to hate those who oppress. We also were ignorant. We also were in bondage to sin. And as much as lied within us, we did evil. We did evil. Jesus saved me when I was a small child. 
But even as a small child, I did evil what I could. That's a sad thing. Some of my earliest memories were even, I, re, I can remember back when I was very young, before I learned how to talk. And I can remember uh, one particular incident where I really wanted to do something very bad. As a small child, didn't know how to talk yet. That's an inherent sin. That's a, that's a terrible thing. And that's what's in every human being. And unless Jesus intervene, that's only going to grow as you get older. And we have no reason to hate those who hate us. We have to love them because we were once in the same condition. Jesus told, I'm sorry, God, through Christ, through the word of God and the times of the law, through Moses said that the people of Israel were to love the strangers. To love those because they were also strangers once. They know the heart of a stranger. That's what he says in the law. And we should know the heart of an unbeliever. Because we were unbelievers once. So we should always have compassion. Now let's go to verse 123. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation. And for the word of of thy righteousness. Now, what is he talking about here? Mine eyes fail. That means he looks for something with, a, with an eager and earnest desire. He's going to continue hoping and continue looking for that thing. He continues to wait, even though he has not received what he's looking for in full measure. Now, remember, when he says, mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness, there's a sense in which the most important part of his salvation and the word of righteousness, he's already received. Because you can't even begin to hope for what's right until you've already been saved. And so, but even after you're saved, and even though you've received the righteousness of God, you're still hoping for the full completion of that. As believers, we've been saved from our sin. The guilt has been taken by our Lord Jesus Christ, and we've received forgiveness of sins. And God counts us before him legally righteous in Christ Jesus. And yet, the truth of the matter is, we're still sinners. And so we look forward to the fulfillment of our salvation when we're completely delivered from sin, don't we? When there's no more wicked thoughts come in your mind, no more wicked words come out your mouth, when you have a heart that's completely purged of even the desire for what is wrong, that's what we're looking forward to. And so sometimes your eyes fail with longing for that salvation and for the word of righteousness. But if you turn to Psalm 69, let's consider here as well an example of this. In Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4.
at verse, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness, and my sins are not hid from thee. Here we see the believer crying out to God. He says, my throat is dried, mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. He is suffering many things in this life. People hate him wrongfully. And he suffered many outward afflictions. But also look in verse 5. Inward afflictions as well. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. There's even guilt in his heart as he knows that he has failed to keep God's law perfectly. And yet, if you look at verse 13, look what it says. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, in a multitude of thy mercy, hear me. And in the truth of thy salvation, even in these things, he has hope in God. His faith is strong, trusting in the Lord. He doesn't have hope in his own personal righteousness that he can earn God's favor. He cannot purchase God's love with his works, but he trusts in God's mercy. In the multitude of thy mercy, hear me. And this is what God has commanded us to do, to trust in him as a perfect savior. He's able to deliver us from our present afflictions, and he's able to deliver us from everything that pertains to our sins. And so we will continue in this life to look to God, because we're not finished yet. As you're going through your Christian discipleship, following the Lord Jesus, you're going to have many ups and downs. Always remember that we got to continually look to the Lord to complete that which He began. He has to complete it. We're not there yet. I, I've said before, some of them old hymns, I don't like. Some of them give you the impression that that you know, it's all butterflies and rainbows when you get saved and that you, you're going to get carried on a pillow through the whole rest of your life in total peace and comfort as you float into heaven. It, it, you know, you listen to some of them old hymns, you get the idea that that's what it's like. No, not even close. Not even close. That's delusional. A true believer got to go through many hard things in this life. And sometimes it's very dark. You have to continue to wait on the Lord and trust in the Lord, and it's going to be hard. Especially when you go through that dark night of the soul and where God has hid his face. You're not comforted in your soul like you used to be. What do you do then? Has God forsaken you? No. What does the scripture say when you walk in darkness? It says in Isaiah, when you walk in darkness and you have no light, what do you do? You trust in the name of the Lord. Stay upon your God, even when you're in the darkness. You trust Him.
in his name. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. We trust in the name of the Lord, even when it's dark. And so even though your eyes might fail with desire, with longing, it's been a long road. You still must trust in the Lord and in the word of his righteousness. And remember what that word of righteousness is. That word of the righteousness is the gospel. Is that what he's talking about here? Well, that's the only way of acceptance with God. We trust in the word of the righteousness of the Lord's righteousness. Look what he says. The word of thy righteousness in verse 123 of Psalm 119. The word of his righteousness. And where can we see that again? That word of righteousness. Well, Paul talks about that in, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 16 and 17, this is what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live. By faith, there is the righteousness of God. God is righteous in keeping all his promises. That's what the righteousness of God has to do with. God keeping his promises, keeping the faith, keeping his word. But the ultimate expression of God keeping his promises is the redemption that he sent through his son. That is the perfect completion of all God's promises. Every good thing. God ever promised is encapsulated in Jesus Christ. And every other thing he ever gave and promised is just a shadow, just a type, just something that points to the great righteousness and salvation that he's given through his only begotten son. And that's the word of righteousness. The temporal deliverances that we receive in this life and that other saints received in the life where they were brought through the Red Sea, right? Where... Uh, terrible, dangerous battles were won. David delivered out of the hands of his enemy. David delivered in his battle with Goliath. All of these things just pointed to the great salvation that God gave through his son. That's the word of righteousness. So you see how you find the gospel when you look here in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms. You find the gospel. All of this pointed to the gospel. So let's keep going. In verse 124. Now this pertains to the same thing we've been talking about. In verse 124. The believer here is again going to make a claim to God's promises. That's what we're talking about here in verse 124. Look what it says. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy and teach me thy statutes. First of all, he says, deal with me according to your mercy. Now, what does he mean by mercy? Now, a lot of people could get confused with words. We have to interpret scripture with scripture. And the Bible sets the vocabulary for words in, in the Bible. 
So if we want to know the correct interpretation of a word, we need to find that in the scripture itself. Now, we use the word mercy today in kind of a broad general sense of a general benevolence. Right? We're just going to be merciful. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give the homeless guy some money. I'm going to be merciful. Right? We use it or whatever. We use it in that term to kind of just show a mercy. And the Bible uses uh, the word mercy in that sense sometimes too. But this word in the King James Bible very often is the word hesed in Hebrew. And that's a special kind of mercy. It's a very particular kind of mercy. It's a covenant mercy. It's a mercy of promise. It's connected to God's promises. So let me show you where we can find the interpretation for this, for this word mercy according to the scripture. So if you turn to Micah chapter 7, let's let the scripture interpret scripture here. Let's get a Bible definition of how the Holy Spirit is using this word. If you turn to Micah, Micah chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 18 through 20. And I think this is a very encouraging thing we find here in Micah chapter 7, verses 18. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit has said. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So here we see mercy is defined as God's covenant promises. And this is to what our believer in Psalm 119 is appealing. He's appealing to God's word and God's promises, not just a general benevolence. Well, God is good. He's good to all. So hopefully he'll be good to me. No, 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 no. It's stronger than that. Much stronger. He's taken hold of God's promise. His holy covenant. And that's how it's defined here in Micah. And that covenant is a covenant of mercy. It's a covenant of salvation that God has promised to all who believe. And we can find, we see this again. You see this all through the scripture once you start looking for it. But let me take you one more place where you see an appeal to this mercy. Psalm 51. Look at Psalm 51. What is Psalm 51 about? Psalm 51 is a psalm from David after he had committed heinous sins before God. This is the lowest, worst time of David's life where he had failed. And he failed miserable. And he put himself in terrible danger. He sinned against a God that had been nothing but good to him. Nothing but good to him. And had given him everything. He had absolutely no excuse for what he did. 
And even today, in the wicked, depraved day we live in, even today, the sins that he committed are considered very heinous. So to what does David appeal when he seeks for forgiveness and restoration and healing? Well, look what he says. In verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. See that word there, loving kindness? That's the same word. Hesed. Same word. The King James translators use a translate, typically will translate that Hebrew word either loving kindness or mercy. But that's the same word right there. According to thy loving kindness, thy mercy, thy covenant love, blot out my transgressions. He makes an appeal to the promise of God, to sinners who will turn to him in repentance and faith. It's hard to do when you've got a burden of guilt on you. Sometimes it's hard to believe that God will have mercy. But God has given us these examples in the scriptures so that we'll be encouraged. So even though you may be truly guilty before God, you'll be encouraged to turn to him in faith. He is mighty to save. The blood of Christ is sufficient to wash away sin of everyone who believes in him. Everyone who believes in him. And so, the psalmist writes here in Psalm 119, verse 124, Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy. And that's how we want the Lord to deal with us. According to his mercy, his covenant love. And then he goes on to say, Teach me thy statutes. Give me, I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know Thy testimonies. You see, that's the next step. When the Lord has shown you mercy, how do we respond? The, the, the response you're going to get is one of gratitude, one of love. When you see the wickedness of sin, when you know where you came from, you don't want to go back there anymore. No, you don't want that anymore. You want to walk in newness of life. You don't want them old dead works anymore. They're bitter to you. They're bitter. Bitter memories. Bitter memories. And things that you have done that you don't want to do anymore. Sin has its pleasure, but it's very bitter to a believer. The memories, uh, an unbeliever thinks back to his sin, and oh, they're sweet. He'll roll them around his head. He'll think about all those sins he used to commit. Wish he was back there committing them again. Right? But a believer can't do that. Believer thinks back to his sin and he's grieved. He don't even want to think about it. He wishes it never happened. It's bitter. It makes him sad and depressed. And sometimes makes him afraid. He thinks back to them sins. Say, man, alive, that's so bad. Am I sure God has forgiven me? That's the way a believer thinks about sin. A believer wants to walk in God's statutes. And this is what it says right here. He says, I'm thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. How can we know the will of God? 
How can we know for sure what God wants us to do? God has been very merciful. He's given it to us in a book. He's given us the Holy Scriptures. And in this book, we can know His will. We can know how God thinks about things. We can know what God hates and loves. We can know what God requires of us. We can know the promises that He's given. We can know the threatenings if disobedience happens. We can know all these things through the Holy Scriptures. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not just part of it. All of it. Given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For doctrine. For reproof. For correction. For instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. So the Lord has given us a sufficient scripture for doctrine so we can know, we can understand God according to our measure. He is infinite. We can understand our God. We can understand his will and we can understand what's required of us. And it corrects us when we're wrong. It reproves us. There's times I open this Bible and it's like, oh, got me. You know, and I remember, man, I, I've been doing that. I got to repent. Sometimes I have to be reproved. I have to be corrected and instructed in righteousness. God has given us the guide that we need. And that's what he's praying for, because you know what? This believer had scriptures too. He didn't have the whole scripture like we have today. It wasn't completed yet. But this believer had uh, the law of Moses and other writings that God had inspired up till that time. Now, think about how much light you've been given as compared to this believer. I was thinking about Job the other day and the things Job went through. And uh, Job didn't have a book of Job to read. <laughs> he was living out the book of Job. And so now we have the book of Job, right? And so when I go through similar things that Job went through, man, I, now I've got, I've got a guidebook. I can read and I can see, all right. Here's where he did good. Here's where he did bad. I can understand what's going on. I can have peace. I can have faith and hope. God has given me a wonderful privilege to learn from the experience of other believers. So this is uh, what the believer says here in verse 125. I'm thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. If you truly want to serve the Lord, you got to know his will. And if you want to know his will, you got to know the Bible. There is no substitute for your personal time with the scripture. There's no substitute for that. And uh, going to church is very important, but you've got to be studying on your own. You have to be spending time alone with God and alone with the Scripture. I mean, there is a... I've been studying this book for many years, and sometimes I feel like I've only just scratched the surface. I mean, if you live to be 100 years old, you would not reach all the depths of this book. So spend your personal time in it 
If you're God's servant, you want to know his will. That way you can serve him and be a good servant. Because think about it. What is the greatest reward you could have? Let me tell you how I think about it. There's one thing that I long for. I want to hear Jesus say to me, well done. That's it. That's what I want. You know, I'm sure heaven is glorious. I got no doubt. But for me, nothing would beat that. So that's what I want. So in order for that to happen, in order for me to be a faithful servant, I got to know God's will. And I'm only going to know God's will through the Bible. And that's what this believer is saying. Lord God, I want to know your will. Teach me your will. Let me know your commandments. Let me know your statutes. So let's go on to verse 126. In verse 126, we're going to see the dark side of the cloud. We're going to see the opposite of that. What does it say here in verse 126? It's time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Now notice what he says here. It's time for thee to work, Lord. See, we're not like the Islamists. We're not like the Muslims. When people dis disrespect God, when people uh, defy the word of God, we don't go on some jihad. That ain't taught in scripture. We don't do that. No true Christian does that. There have been baloney fake Christians in the past that have done such things, but those things are not commanded or approved by God. We leave it to the Lord. When that happens, and it is happening, that's the Lord to deal with. We got enough to deal with dealing with ourselves. And we got enough to deal with living up to God's word in our own lives. We have enough to deal with being faithful witnesses to the love of God in Christ Jesus. And testifying to our neighbors that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. And that anyone who believes on him will be saved from their sins. That's what we're to focus on. But this believer says, it's time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. How do people void the law? And remember, many times, too, in the Old Testament, I'll remind you again, when you hear that word law, don't just think Ten Commandments. And don't just think the five books of Moses. Remember that many times in the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that term law represents all the revelation of God. So God's entire revelation can be meant by that word law. How do they void the law? Well, one way the false Christians void the law is by picking and choosing what they want to believe and what they want to do. They like all of that stuff about God's mercy and his love, but they don't like the ethics, the morals, and the commandments that God has given so they want to keep those worldly morals. They want to keep the worldly ethics. But they want the love and mercy of God. And so they turn the grace of God into license. And they want to pervert the gospel. To a message that God is going to tolerate. 
and accept you no matter how you live. And that you can go on in your sin and have Christ Jesus too. That's a false doctrine. You void the scriptures by doing that. You're mutilating the scriptures. You're wrecking God's testimony by doing that. That's not what the scripture teaches. You're making void the law. False Christians will do that. How do false teachers do that? False teacher voids the law by providing loopholes. Right? They'll explain away the things in Scripture. They'll try to make the Scripture align with what's going on in the culture. So that, so that people that live in the world will have a peaceful conscience even as they go on in their sin. Remember that false teachers are businessmen. They are. False prophets, false teachers are always businessmen. They look out and they see what people want. And then they sell it to them. People want love without responsibility. People want heaven without repentance. People want a kind of Christ without a cross. It's popular and it sells. But it's a lie. It makes void the law. The false teacher is peddling something that leads to damnation. But it's for God to deal with that. Not for me, not for you. God is a jealous God. He has said that. He says that in the law. He says he's a jealous God and he says his name is jealous. Believe me, you're not going to be more concerned for the holiness of God than God. God's going to deal with the false prophet, the false teacher, and he's going to deal with the false Christian too. The thing is, we've got to make sure that we ain't the false Christian and we ain't the false teacher. That's the big thing. But we will leave that up to the Lord. Another way God's law is voided is when evil rulers persecute those who seek to honor God and reward those who dishonor God. We live in a time like that. People that have conscience to God very often will suffer for that at the hands of authorities that should be punishing evil and rewarding good. And make avoid the law. The scripture warns about that. It says there are those who frame iniquity by statute. They frame iniquity by statute. I think about all the innocent children butchered and murdered in these abortion clinics. Perfectly legal. I found out this week, reading an article... That these little babies that they collect up from these abortion clinics, they take to a place up there in Baltimore, Maryland, and they're heating their homes with the burning bodies of these little aborted babies. They heat their homes with that. Fuel. Heinous. This is the stuff the Canaanites were doing. They made void the law. The law of scripture, the law of nature, the law of conscience, the complete revelation of God, they voided it. 
become something completely depraved. But that's for God to deal with. We have the same, have the same spirit that the, that the believer has here in Psalm 119. What does he say? It's time for the Lord to work. We leave that to the Lord. There is still room for repentance and forgiveness for many of these people who have been guilty of these things. These women that have done this, there's still room for repentance and forgiveness. For evil rulers that have framed iniquity by statute, there's still room for repentance and forgiveness. And we need to be praying for them. God has commanded us to pray for rulers and authorities. We're not to insurrect. We're not to disrespect. We are to pray. Render honor where honor is due. We'll follow the example of Jesus Christ who stood before Pontius Pilate and he left it to God to vindicate. And God did. We're going to do the same thing. That's the right way. Look what he says here in verse 127 and 128 to conclude. How is the believer here in his personal life going to respond to when he sees the law of God voided? That's what these therefores are. In verse 127 and 128, he's responding to what he said in verse 126. It's time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore, I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. He is going to treasure God's word. The more it's disrespected, the more I'm going to respect it. The more it is discarded, the more I'm going to treasure it. The more it is hated, the more I'm going to love it. This is the thing. When the house is burning down, that's what you're grabbing first, the Bible. That's the most important thing in your life. Treasured above gold. The Word of God. Look what he says in verse 128. And sometimes we must act in defiance to other things being taught, taught us and told us. Verse 128, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I'm going to choose God's revelation before whatever anybody else tells me. The scripture says that God created this material universe in six days. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what credentials you have. I don't care what university you came from. I do not care if you make it a law that everybody has to believe that this earth is bazillion trillions of years old. I don't, I don't care. I am going to believe God's word. I defy them. I will believe God's word. It is right. The scripture testifies that Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. I don't care if they tell me that's scientifically impossible. Those things that are impossible for man are possible with God. God has said it. It is true. It is right. And I hate every false way. I'm not choosing that way. And listen, you're not going to be disappointed. If you choose God's word above what the world tells you, you will not be disappointed in the end. Those who have lived in defiance of God's word are the ones who are going to be disappointed. And we don't want to follow that way. Anything that contradicts the Bible is false. Period. 
They're going to say we're backward. They're going to say we're ignorant. I can live with that. Can you? I can live with that. I feel very safe and secure resting in God's word. So let's keep in mind the things that the Lord has revealed to us today through his scriptures here. Remember that our lives are to reflect a true saved person, a person with an authentic profession of faith. You're going to have good works. You're going to live in accordance with God, God's commandments. Remember that a, a person with a true profession of faith, like this believer is making here, he has a surety before God. He has a Savior. The one who bore his iniquities and gifted him with his righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have here in this passage, we learn that a, a true believer is one who seeks God's word who loves God's word and treasures it, wants to know God's commandments so that he can obey them. He wants to obey God. It isn't a drag. He wants to obey God. He gets pleasure in obeying God. That's another thing you see here with a true believer. And finally, we see here a true believer will defy everything that contradicts God's word and will live in according to the light of the scripture. So I hope that these are encouraging words to you that the Holy Spirit has given to you today. Take these things to heart. Remember also that in the life of this believer, he is just like us. He went through many of the things we've had to go through. And we also have the same spirit of faith. And remember also that the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect Example of what it is to be a true servant of God. He delighted to do God's will. He said his law was in his heart. And what was that will that he delighted in? In that context of Psalm 40, what was it? Barren sins that he didn't commit. Saving people who did not deserve to be saved. Stepping into the darkness of death. Paying a debt he did not owe. That's what he delighted to do. That was God's will for him. And he perfectly fulfilled it. And he did that for us. So remember that Christ Jesus is our example in faithfulness and obedience to God. And we're to follow his example. And also these saints that went before us. Like this saint here who wrote Psalm 119. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord our God, that you have provided us everything we need for life and godliness. You have provided us a wonderful surety and Savior who is able to redeem us from every iniquity. You have provided us wonderful examples of other believers who have come before us. And you, Heavenly Father, have also granted us the Holy Scripture. Now, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, this same spirit of faith, that just like this believer in Psalm 119, we also would trust in the salvation and righteousness you have provided through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that we would delight to do your will and also have your law written on our hearts. 
And for all these things, Heavenly Father, we give you alone the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.